This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, and welcome to Amicus Slate Supreme Court Podcast. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I used to cover the court for Slate, but now I just pretty much lay on the floor and drool and try to recover from the term, which ended with a bang on Monday. And we're bringing you this special off-week edition of our show to try to sum up, round up, finish up the term with some big thoughts. Because if nothing else, the court has proved again this week that you may need nine justices to function, but just eight justices can drop a whole lot of drama. Later on in the show, we'll recap some of the highlights and the lowlights of the term with my Supreme Court compadre here at Slate, Mark Joseph Stern. But first, we wanted to spend a little time taking stock of the big decision handed down this past Monday in the abortion case, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. In a 5-3 to three decision, the court invalidated two provisions of the omnibus Texas abortion regulation known as HB2. Those passed in 2013 over Wendy Davis's famous filibuster. Writing for the majority this week, Justice Stephen Breyer gave force to the idea that abortion regulations must achieve the intended medical ends they seek, and they cannot simply stand as obstacles to reproductive rights. In so doing, he shored up the meaning of, quote, undue burden, a standard established by the court 24 years earlier in the landmark abortion case Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Amy Hagstrom-Miller is the founder and CEO of Whole Woman's Health, the company that runs seven clinics nationwide and that became the lead plaintiff in this case. I am so pleased to have her today with me right here in studio. Welcome to Amicus. Amy. Thank you so much. So, Amy, I think listeners know some of this, but maybe not all of it. So let's set the table and help us understand what the two provisions of HB2 were that were at issue and how it is that Whole Women's Health... Uh, with the Center for Reproductive Rights becomes the plaintiff in this case. Sure. So HB2 actually had four onerous requirements in it. Um, There was great restrictions on medication abortion and a 20-week ban. And then the two that we challenged with this lawsuit were the requirement that all abortions be formed in an ambulatory surgical center, oftentimes referred as an ASC, which is really like a mini hospital. And two, that all physicians who provide abortion services need to have active admitting privileges 
services at a hospital within 30 miles of the clinic. So those are the two that we took on with this lawsuit. As you probably know, we've had a new restriction pass every two years since 2000. Um, the only good thing about the Texas state legislature is that they meet every other year. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, at this time, you know, it was really clear to me that and I fought the law from the beginning. You know, I was there testifying when it was SB5 in the Senate. And so when it came, you know, when the law passed, it just became, you know, obvious that we were the people to champion the challenge. And um, for me, I had been testifying about how we can't, not only could we not afford to build an ambulatory surgical center, but that it was wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, that I felt like, you know, in our quest to sort of comply um, over the last sort of 10, 15 years, each two years we have to comply with new regulations. We write a whole new set of protocols. We have to sort of comply, comply, comply. That if you pick your head up and you start looking at this sort of compliance endeavor, you realize it's absurd. And it, it's sort of changed your relationship with the patient. And it's also you're practicing for the regulators if you're not careful. Can you can you talk a little bit? You flicked at it. But I think probably a lot of listeners know that the two provisions that were challenged ambulatory surgical centers and the admitting privileges. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of listeners, they sound pretty innocuous and mm-hmm. benign. You know, hey, right. maybe it should look like a surgical center. Maybe doctors should be able to rush, you know, a right. person to the hospital. So can you just walk us through those two provisions and help us understand the thing that is intuitive to you, which sure. is we don't need these. Sure. So 70 to 80 percent of the abortions in this country are done by small independent providers that are that are community-based clinics, not unlike Whole Women's Health. Um, the majority of those clinics were started in the 70s, right after Roe. Um, a lot of them are women-owned businesses. Some of them are doctor-owned practices. Um, and so we provide the majority of abortions in the country. Planned Parenthood is the largest single abortion provider. Um, and most of us independent providers um, also do family planning. Some of us do obstetrics. Some of us do community health care as well in, in our practices. So we're in line with that sort of community clinic philosophy and, and sort of fabric of healthcare in the country. You know, family medicine doctors, um, a lot of physicians that you find locally in your communities. Our practice, and abortion practice specifically, isn't a hospital-based endeavor, right? So abortions take about five or ten minutes. They're very safely done in a doctor's office setting. Um, there's no anesthesia. Women walk into the procedure room, walk out of the exam room. Um, we at Whole Women's Health invite people's families to come in and you know, a, a woman's loved one to come into the procedure room with her. Um, it's done in, in the same exam room. You might have a, you know, annual checkup in or a pap smear in or whatever. And so what happened with the introduction of the ambulatory surgical center requirements or the admitting privileges requirements is a couple of things. One, it's a, it's an over-medicalization. It's, it's what they call a supply-side restriction. So they're trying to come up with a restriction that's going to close clinics down by requiring onerous physical plant requirements or onerous sort of regulatory requirements. But what they were brilliant at, honestly, is pitching those requirements under the guise of women's health and safety, right? right? So they messaged the privileges requirement as though it was somehow some some sort of way to be sure that a doctor was adequate or, you know, had the proper credentials. Um, so the talking points sound reasonable. When you go back to community-based medicine, the vast majority of physicians who have doctor's offices don't have hospital privileges because the majority of their medical practice isn't hospital-based. Right. Um, so they're not if they're not doing surgeries... Um, or they're not delivering babies as an OB, they don't necessarily maintain those privileges. One, because there's a, lots of requirements in the hospital 
the the least of which is a, a number of patients you have to admit annually, um, and that's because it's a revenue generating thing for the hospital, sure. right? So part of privileging requirements is you have to have a certain amount of surgeries to get privileges. You have to have a certain amount of admissions to the hospital annually to maintain them. The catch-22 is that abortion is one of the safest procedures known to medicine, period. And we, knock on wood, hardly ever have hospital admissions. When my clinic in Austin was open over a 10-year period, we had one hospital admission. So because of the safety of abortion, we're not going to ever admit 10 to 12 patients a year. And if I had a doctor who had that many admissions, they wouldn't be working for whole themselves. Right, you know? right. And so it's this kind of strange you know, practice where they tried to say, oh, the doctors don't have an affiliation with a hospital. Well, neither do most sort of dermatologists or family medicine doctors or most office-based practices. So they, they sort of put forward this lie, really, about continuity of care, where the real continuity of care is your doctor, um, whether it's an abortion provider or any other physician, would usually call the hospital and, and do what's called a transfer. Right. And it would have a relationship with the doctor who's receiving the patient. And that's what we had before HB2. And it had worked for 40 years. We always had um, a backup arrangement or transfer agreement with a doctor if in case we ever needed it. Um, and similarly with the ambulatory surgical center, it sounds like, oh, why shouldn't women we have... We need an HVAC. Yeah, why shouldn't women have surgery? Why right. shouldn't it be... Well, first of all, abortion isn't surgery. Right. There's no incisions um, and there's no anesthesia. The patient's not you know, completely asleep like she might be for knee surgery or cataract surgery or other things that are done in a, in a surgical center. So what you have with an ASC requirement is this onerous physical plant requirement, the airflow system, the hallway widths, that is completely and totally unnecessary for abortion procedure. The abortions we perform in an ASC and that we perform in the clinic are done the same. The the procedure doesn't change at all. We just have to do it in this building that requires about a 40% more overhead in order to operate it and doesn't add one bit of safety to the woman's experience or to the actual procedure. So, Amy, Unbelievably, in 48 episodes of this show, we have never had the name plaintiff in the show because we talk about footnotes and we talk about glosses on footnotes and then we talk about dissents and we talk a lot about doctrine, but we don't often have the person who's been on this case from the beginning. And I feel like maybe a lot of listeners don't even know what that involves. Um, What is it that we miss, those of us who just kind of tuned in Mm -hmm. when Hellerstedt comes to the U.S. Supreme Court? Tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit of the process of going through this from the trial level. So as you probably figured out, my approach to abortion is this open and honest. I have nothing to hide. I stand in the light. And so I felt very called to be the plaintiff in that way because the the state's approach was very much of a gotcha approach. Like they wanted to sort of snare us on the abortion and money stigma, or they wanted to sort of show we had, you know, they have this stigma that abortion providers, you know, are profiteers or whatever. So they wanted to show that we had all this money and we could afford to build an ASC. And the only reason we didn't want to build an ASC is had to do with money. So part of being the plaintiff was everything I have was subpoenaed. I I mean, boxes and boxes and boxes of information. The state had well over 10,000 of my personal emails. They have seven years of Whole Women's Health financials for all five of our Texas clinics. They have every doctor contract. They have every lease, every mortgage, every single budget for any time I did a physical plant improvement because we're trying to make this argument that this sort of physical plant requirements of an ASC are not only onerous, but that they aren't affordable. And so one of the things I was actually sort of excited to share my financials with them because we haven't made more than a 1% profit since 2010, right? (laughs) And so it, it just sort of 
you know, most of us in abortion are here because of the, the human rights and justice cause and not because it's not an easy, quote unquote, business to be in. You know, you're not going to go into abortion because you're interested in profit. You're interested in making the world a better place. And so I saw this role as a, a way that I could really, you know, one, illustrate the humanity of the abortion provider, but also provide facts and data. I mean, I have all of this material, all of this information. And so that discovery process was intense. Um, we worked with 25 hospitals um, in five different cities on behalf of 14 physicians trying to get admitting privileges. And we were only able to secure privileges for four of them. And is that because some of them were religious hospitals who on yeah. principle wouldn't? Yeah. Yeah. Or therefore, I have a, a handful of board-certified OB-GYN f- physicians who are semi-retired, who haven't done surgeries, you know, in maybe 10 years in their practice, so they didn't have a surgical case log to be able to get, ad- you know, admitting privileges, et cetera. So all of that data was turned over to the state to illustrate why admitting privileges are, you know, onerous and why ambulatory surgical center requirements, we can't just fundraise and get, you know, $26 million to build an ASC as a small community-based independent provider. So that discovery process was intense. Then I had to do, um, well, I was a witness in the first trial, and then I um, had to do a deposition for the second trial. And, you know, I was sort of the lightning rod, right? So they wanted to depose me both as Amy Hagstrom-Miller, the individual, and Amy Hagstrom-Miller, the representative of the corporation. And so there was a lot of back and forth of them trying to get me twice or trying to make it seem like I wasn't making myself available. Like all these sort of nasty things were going back and forth. And finally, they um, we set an agreement and they deposed me on a Sunday, which I found, you know, interesting for the state. Um, and my deposition was nine and a half hours. Um, and that was incredibly intense, um, incredibly intense to prepare for. Um, and that sort of really sort of suave, nice approach of the um, attorney who deposed me trying to elicit information. And then that sort of the tone really changed about halfway through the deposition when, you know, there was a, okay, I'm not, this approach isn't getting me what I want, you know, so it was really intense. Um, and people always say, you know, did they give you lunch? No, they didn't give me lunch. <laughs> I got a couple of breaks, <laughs> but it was pretty, you know, it wasn't, it was professional, but it was not a friendly endeavor. And it wasn't witnessed by the public in the same way that my, um, you know, cross-examination at the trial was. Then I was in the witness stand for five and a half hours in the trial, um, you know, longer than anybody else because there was this sort of gotcha. And they made me do lots of things. Like um, they had me read our complication logs out loud. You know, they photocopied them and tried to make it look like there was a whole bunch of them, you know, gave me this volume. And when, in fact, they had photocopied the same page a whole bunch of times and (laughs) a lot of different things. But, you know, they tried to do this sort of gotcha. And you have to be not only on your game, but I am very aware of the stigma of abortion providers. And so I'm on my game intellectually for the for the endeavor but I'm also on my game I want people to see like oh look at her she seems nice you know because everybody has some abortion stigma you know and so I'm very aware of that in the courtroom so I'm not going to sort of snicker or I'm not going to um you know be snarky there was one um cross examination where the the state's attorney um and I could see his face nobody else in the courtroom could see his face you know so I could tell that it was a stressful endeavor for him um but no one else you know in the courtroom other than the judge could see could see that sort of emotion on his face but he was trying to sort of set up this premise that I might be I might have some conflict about the income that we have in our clinics the, the sort of abortion and money stigma and so he made some comment like well I know how many abortions you do in your Fort Worth office and he was trying to make the argument we could afford to turn the Fort Worth office into an ASC 
was his sort of fundamental premise. And he was like, I know how many abortions you do because I have the statistics here and I've been to your website and I know how much you charge for them. And, you know, I know, you know, and then he just said, I know you're not in this business to make a killing. Right. Oh. And so it was this moment of like, oh, I, you know, wow, I can't believe you just said that. And I just, you know, looked at him very professionally and smiled and the entire courtroom just gasped, you know, um, and it was just sort of like trying to get me, you know, this gotcha kind of thing. But um, I'm not, there's nothing I'm hiding. So you can't really gotcha me, you know, <laughs> there's nothing, you know, we're not doing anything wrong. And, and um, you know, we shared all of our books, we shared all of our contracts, there's nothing to hide. And so that sort of gotcha premise, um, it just didn't work. It seems to me that the predicate belief, and you see it in some of Justice Alito's dissent, you see it in the questions about Kermit Gosnell. Mm -hmm. um, he's the uh, abortion provider who was actually indicted for uh, horrific abuses. You even see it, I saw it in Justice Alito's questioning at oral argument about the holes in the yeah. clinics that rats could come right. out of. And you have this sense that underlying so much of the conversation around abortion, and you've sort of said this, there's this nefarious, you know, Justice Scalia famously in announcing an opinion once called clinics abortion mills, right? Mm -hmm. That didn't make it into his written opinion. But this thinking that this is, you know, the most pernicious system of preying upon women and there's this sort of filthy... Uh, thoughtless, you know, mm -hmm. joy in carnage mm -hmm. that is built into what you do. And it's so, I, I mean, this is clearly what the Planned Parenthood yeah. sting videos are trying to embody. Right. And so it's so interesting. I'm imagining listeners listening to you thinking, mm -hmm. but no, that's not, those clinics are bad. Mm -hmm. Kermit Gosnell was bad. And I, it's somehow, it's so infected this conversation. Right. And then layered around that, the idea that women have no agency, they can't make good choices, that they are preyed upon in a way that men wouldn't be. It's sort of the icing on the cake, mm -hmm. if you will. And so I guess I just want you to respond to the stigma around what it is that you're meant to be doing and how, you know, you've got this clinic with fuzzy blankets mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. trying to encourage loved ones to come in. It seems as though the disconnect is not only vast, Amy, but unbridgeable. Right. So Kermit Gosnell was a criminal. Right. And so I think what, what we when we look at the stigma, I mean, these stigmas are manufactured and they're tools for our opposition. And I'm incredibly aware of this. Right. That this narrative and this story that's being told is being told on purpose. And that I think it's important for us to, to examine who's benefiting from the perpetuation of these stigmas, whether it's the abortion provider stigma or the kind of woman who has an abortion, et cetera. And I think what's at the root of this is this sort of desire to control women's agency and women's power. And abortion. I'm oftentimes heard abortion is the hole in the donut. Like there's no there there. It's not about abortion. It's about women's identity, women's autonomy, women's power, their ability to control their future, their fertility, etc. And that's what drives people crazy about abortion is that women have the ability to choose the path for their life, to act with agency and to decide what happens to them. That's what drew me to abortion. Um, the medicine, the law, uh, you know, the sort of how to run a small business. I had to learn all that stuff as a byproduct of this moment in time when a woman chooses a path for her life. When unplanned pregnancy, regardless of the outcome, actually, shines a bright light on a woman's life and has her examine her hopes and her dreams and her values. And that abortion is one of the choices you can make at that moment in time. But that what is important is to witness that examination of identity and that self-esteem that happens at that moment and those stigmas that are thrown at us. And there's stigmas about 
people who have babies who shouldn't have babies, people who give their baby up for adoption, people who have abortion. There's stigmas around all of it. And if we connect across whatever choice you make with that unplanned pregnancy, if we connect across that and realize there's stigmas for all of them and they're all designed to keep us in our place. That's really what's happening here. And so when you have Justice Alito make some comment about um, rats, you know, that could be in my clinic, I think, one, if I respond and say that's the clinic in East Texas that's in a hurricane district that's required to have drains in the floor because it's a city code, I can respond like that with facts and it's true. But what I need to do as somebody who's interested in shifting the stigma is acknowledge the feelings and beliefs that people have about sexuality, about autonomy, about identity in my answer. Because if I don't acknowledge that people have very strong feelings about abortion or feelings about fertility, and I just only give people facts, I'm not going to actually move people and shift them to think differently about what we're doing as abortion providers, but more importantly, about the sort of stigma that's being manufactured about us, right? So I can give you the facts of like why Alito was incorrect and why actually we were required to have drains in the floor because we've had to evacuate for both Ike and Rita, et cetera. So I find that sort of amusing, but really what, what's happening here is he's jumping on this, this shame and stigma that's really a manufactured thing that's kept really to keep women in their place. One last question, and I this is now asking you to take off your Amy hat and mm-hmm. put on your prognosticator hat. But we've seen just in the few days since Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt comes down, we've seen the court bat away, you know, cases from Wisconsin, from Mississippi. We've seen a judge, a federal judge in Indiana block their abortion restriction. We're seeing huge efforts in the states that have similar laws to Texas push mm-hmm. really hard to say, hey, this is over. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised by the speed and ferocity of the pushback. I guess I'm asking, you know, it seems to me as though reproductive health has had the losing side of this for so long. Is it somewhat of a whiplash to be like, oh, my God, we we might be winning some of this now? So to be honest, this is what I truly, truly hoped for. You know, (laughs) I hoped for that we would be able to illustrate tangibly and emotionally that would move people what what undue burden is and so you know watching mississippi fall and alabama and and watching hopefully louisiana and you know i it's just been incredible to think of one the, the laws that have fallen already but two the kind of lawsuits we can bring because of the tone that was set here and also the things that'll be stopped that would have been introduced in the next legislation because, you know, this decision was so clear um, and so decisive. So even this morning I was talking to my team and wondering, like just sort of wondering, we have a clinic in Illinois and there's an admitting privileges requirement and a physical plant requirement. It's not as bad as Texas, but I just said this morning, hey, (laughs) I wonder if we can get around this admitting privileges requirement in Illinois. What would we need to do in order to be able to get relief from that because of what happened in Texas? And I think as we look around the country, the worst states are falling, but we're going to look at, you know, Ohio, Missouri, Tennessee, places that have had these kinds of requirements for a long period of time. And Missouri only has one clinic, you know. And so will we see some restoration, not only in Texas, um, but across the country? And that ultimately was the big dream. Amy Hextra Miller is the founder and CEO of Whole Women's Health, the company that runs seven clinics nationwide. She was the lead and victorious plaintiff in the case this week at the Supreme Court. Amy, thank you very much. I know how busy you've been for taking time to be on the show. Thank you so much. This is delightful.
Joining us now to wrap up some of the big themes and trends of the 2015 term is the wonderful Mark Joseph Stern, my comrade in arms at the high court. You may know him from his prolific writing for Slate or from his amicus appearance this time last year where we exhaustedly talked about, among other things, uh, Obergefell, the marriage equality decision that had just been handed down. Mark was a contributor to this year's Supreme Court breakfast table, uh, the 15th annual roundup of the term. And I think it's fair to say this year was the most rowdy breakfast table ever. Uh, Mark writes about the courts, the law, and LGBTQ issues for Slate. So welcome back to Amicus, Mark Stern. Thank you for having me back. This is the high point of every year oh for me. God, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Okay, so Mark, <laughs> let's, let's work through this term. It's been so crazy. It started off as, you know, the term in which the like, you know, conservatives were going to have their revenge. And then it turned into the term where Justice Scalia died. And then it turned into the term where Merrick Garland, we all talked about him and nothing happened. And then it turned into, you know, this huge win for progressives in the last week. So what's our unifying theory in this conversation of what the 2015 term is going to be remembered for? Uh, I mean, maybe that Kennedy is still the freaking king of the court and thus the country after all of this. I mean, when when Scalia died, the immediate reaction was, you know, first there was either sadness or jubilation, depending on your political bent. And then there was a sense like, oh, an era is over. No longer will we all be playing the Kennedy whisperer, trying to figure out what he's going to say, what he's going to do, hanging on his every word at arguments, you know, pouring over every brief to see which one says dignity the most, because that's the brief that wins the case. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it, we all thought that era was over. Turns out we are still very much living in it. And I think the last week of this term especially reminded us that he is the man in control. He is the man in charge. The court is still really divided. It's just divided four liberals and three hardcore conservatives. And then there's Kennedy still sitting in the middle figuring out which way the country's going to go. Right. And being the king of a 4-4 court is kind of even more awesome than being a king of a 5-4 court, right? Yeah, totally. It's way more fun. It's more unpredictable, right? <laughs> so let's talk about, I mean, there's so much to talk about and so much even just that happened this week. But let's maybe start with uh, Fisher. That's the affirmative action case out of Texas. And this is one of, I think this is what you're talking about, right? Where all we thought about for years and years is, <gasps> what's Kennedy going to do with affirmative action? What's he going to do? What's he going to do? And he certainly surprised me. Did he surprise you by uh, upholding UT's finger on the scale for race affirmative action plan? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we should note this was one case in which it was actually only a seven-member court because Justice Kagan was recused. Uh, she had worked on the case when she was Solicitor General. So this was one case where Kennedy really could have still played complete man in the middle, swung to the right, joined the other conservatives and written a four-to-three opinion, uh, you know, sticking another knife in affirmative action, if not just killing it altogether. The rap on Kennedy has always been that he approves of affirmative action in theory in the abstract, but he's never seen a program that he likes. Well, it turns out we all learned he's finally found a program that he likes because last Thursday he came down with an opinion that he wrote himself. So, and that was his own decision. Clearly, he feels strongly about this now. He uh, upheld the University of Texas's affirmative action program, uh, which allows race as, like you said, a thumb on the scale or a factor of a factor of a factor, uh, part of a holistic review. And in doing so, pretty much saved affirmative action for, you know, a 
another generation or at least as long as there are five votes for it on the court. And this was very surprising because this is a man who has written about affirmative action as though it were some kind of disgusting, horrible, grotesque, you know, policy from Nazi Germany that we might have to keep around just just so we can have a little more diversity, but needs to be thrown out the door as soon as possible. And then suddenly he turns around and in Fisher 2, the case that came down at the end of the term, he said, never mind. Basically, I take all that back. Affirmative action can be great. We can respect students' dignity. We can, you know, allow diversity. We have to defer to the university's judgment. And it was a total about face for him. So a couple of things that uh, stuck out in my reading of Fisher, too, and I wonder, uh, you can sort of pick and choose, checks make style, what you want to talk about. But one thing that's interesting is that it seems like he's just bored of this dispute, right? He's like, oh, my God, this is from eight years ago. Abigail Fisher is like in a geriatric home at this point. Like, I just, (laughs) you know, I can't get excited about all this that has kind of come and gone. So there's a a way in which it doesn't feel like it's interesting to him anymore. Uh, The other thing that is fascinating that undergirds, you know, both his majority opinion and Justice Alito's very angry angry dissent is this question of whether the university is in good faith, right? I mean, Kennedy's like, they're doing their best. You know, they're trying to, you know, bring diversity to uh, the campus and they're struggling. And this is, you know, a a pretty decent effort and a valiant attempt to bring about good ends. And, you know, Alito, I mean, his dissent just drips with this feeling that this is just this evil, vile, you know, uh, university community that is trying to do something really, really uh, worrisome and, and pernicious. Well, you know, one thing I think is interesting is there were two blockbuster cases out of Texas in the last days of the term. And one of them, the liberals said, oh, we have to defer. We can always trust their judgment. And then the conservatives said, no, 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 bad faith, bad faith. And then there was a complete flip. And uh, in the next case, the liberals said, no, we shouldn't defer. And the conservatives said, defer, defer. So, of course, I'm talking about Fisher and I'm talking about the abortion case. So, you know, in Fisher, the, the liberals and Kennedy said, well, yeah, let's defer to the university. They seem to know what they're talking about. You know, they've been more or less consistent and they seem to be in good faith. And the conservatives said, you know, as you said, Alito was just basically saying, you guys are a bunch of liars. You know, screw you. You're misrepresenting yourselves left and right here and and seem to disdain the idea that the court should defer to UT. And then come Monday, it was the abortion case. The liberals were saying, well, no, no, no. We have to double check the Texas legislature here. We're not sure if these abortion restrictions are really for women's health. It's on us to figure that out. And Alito and Thomas and Robert said, what are you talking about? Let's take their word for it. Come on. Why not? So, you know, I don't think there's consistency here on either side. But I will say, if you read through UT's briefs, there were some points that Alito made that were valid, where they did kind of flip around on a few side issues. But I think in his dissent, he way overplayed that. I think on the main issues, the University of Texas was pretty consistent and honest here in a way that the Texas legislature never was about these abortion restrictions. I mean, they were talking out of two sides of their mouth every single time it was, is this to protect life? Is this to restrict abortion? Or is it to protect women, protect their health? You know, this boiled down to the hashtag protect them both. But the truth is that the Texas abortion restrictions, everybody knows, were always about preventing abortions from occurring, preventing women from getting abortions. And so, you know, to my lefty mind, it seems exactly right uh, for the court to defer to UT and not to the legislature. But I can see why that inconsistency there would leave a lot of people disgruntled. But maybe it's also um, just worth sort of thinking about, you know, the different 
aims or ambitions here. And part of the problem I think a lot of people have with Fisher is that whatever this diversity rationale is that supports affirmative action doesn't seem to be making anyone happy anymore. So this is the sort of theory, and it's right most at its high watermark uh, when Sandra Day O'Connor writes uh, in the Michigan affirmative action cases that, you know, we need to have affirmative action not to, you know, make reparations for past racial harms, but to have diverse classrooms. And, you know, it's important because we need to have a diverse military and diverse leadership in business. And this diversity rationale, it seems to sag in the middle. Uh, I don't think it makes anyone happy. And so I guess I would just say you can certainly claim that the legislature in Texas, when dealing with abortion, has, you know, multiple aims and it's a moving target and it's very confusing why it is they're trying to regulate these clinics. But I think at the same time, this, you know, one of the ways that Fisher collapses is that the objective here makes nobody happy. Whatever this diversity thing is, it's awfully squishy. Yeah, it's a, it's incredibly squishy because it emerged from the mind of a very squishy justice, Lewis Powell, uh, in 1978 in the Bakke case. And in his concurring opinion, there were four members of the court that said, yeah, affirmative action is great, redress past wrongs, you know, have diversity, whatever, it's all fine. Powell came in as the fifth vote and said, well, no, this isn't for fixing past wrongs. This is only for diversity. As, as you said, O'Connor made that the majority view in the 2003 Michigan case. The problem is that, in my opinion, I think I think I think most liberals agree on this at this point. Uh, the diversity rationale has to be intertwined with the fixing past wrongs rationale in order for it to make sense. Uh, yes, diversity is good. It's a normative good. We need it. Diverse classrooms are excellent. Affirmative action helps with that. Great. But you know, there are certain minorities who have been more oppressed and repressed by the U.S. government than others. And if you don't note that fact, then it doesn't make sense for UT to, for instance, uh, put a heavier uh, finger on the scale when there's a black student applying rather than an Asian student. And this is something that Alito points out over and over again in his dissent. And I, I honestly think it's a good point because if we're only talking about diversity, then why the hell are we only talking about black and Hispanic students? Why aren't we talking about Asian students or, you know, all kinds of other ethnicities and races? The, the answer that we all sort of whisper, I think, is, well, because the U.S. government spent decades and centuries oppressing these groups and they, there are still all these incredibly difficult systemic uh, blockades between them and success that we need to help uh, lift by affirmative action programs. But we're not allowed to say that because of Lewis Powell and because of Sandra Day O'Connor. So like you said, it's squish, squish, squish to the finish line and nobody ends up happy. I want to turn to uh, the immigration case for a minute, Mark, because this is the one that ends in complete collapse. It's a 4-4 split, so it ends up merely affirming uh, the courts below. What that means for practical purposes is that uh, President Obama's executive action with respect to uh, folks who are here illegally, who would have had deferrals on their deportations, is now dead in the water. This is not fixable by the time he leaves office. Uh, I, I want to talk not about the specifics of the case so much as the fact that this has been spun, uh, at least by some conservative pundits, as a huge win for the right, as the court making a declaration about Obama's executive powers. Is that what you're hearing, too? 
Oh, absolutely. I, I, I'm hearing, oh, the court upheld separation of powers. This was a huge blow to Obama's executive overreach. Uh, and I think that is uh, opportunism at best. I think it's just wrong at worst. I mean, you know, this is a, a, a case that was resolved, quote unquote, with a one line, I believe, nine word opinion saying we have no opinion. We're evenly divided and the lower court decision stands and the case moves on. And now it goes to a, a bench trial on the merits. And so Calling that a victory for the right or a victory against Obama or a victory for really anybody uh, except maybe Judge Hanen, who is uh, overseeing this trial down in South Texas, uh, I think that's ridiculous. I think this is just a, a, a sort of punt. I mean, it's just delaying this case further. Everyone knows that it's going to go back up to the Supreme Court, probably in two terms. And so I think that was just Paul Ryan at all grasping for some kind of victory to salvage from this term, which, as you said earlier, really did wind up a mostly progressive. Term. And and what do we make? And I, I'm not even sure what I make of the but I like to talk about it in every show to remind listeners that we do still have a vacancy at the court and they should be really, really chagrined about that. But what do you make of the fact that perhaps the takeaway between the immigration uh, result on the one hand and progressives feeling like they more or less won the term on the other hand, that maybe the national consensus is, ah, Maybe eight justices ain't so bad. This term turned out okay for both sides. Is is that overreading what happened? Uh, well, I'm horrified if that is the takeaway for most Americans, because I think anybody who follows these cases really closely sees why eight justices does not work. I mean, there, there were so many decisions here this term, big decisions like the immigration case, smaller decisions about tribal sovereignty, as you covered beautifully on this show, uh, and, and a few others, uh, state sovereignty and those kinds of issues where the court just couldn't reach a consensus. And that that perpetuated and preserved split circuits in this country. So you still have different substantive law in in one circuit uh, from another. So you could be in California and get the law on your side and then move to Michigan and have another law altogether. I think that's hugely problematic. I think if it's spelled out for Americans, they'll understand it. But I think you're right that most Americans don't care about that kind of in-the-weeds stuff. And they probably do think, hey, you know, with eight members, the court can't make any huge power grabs. You're not going to get Citizens United with eight members. You're not going to get Bush v. Gore with eight members. Uh, and so maybe there is a sense like, hey, we're we're safe. We're safe from the court. If 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 Supreme Court overreaches your primary concern, then yeah, eight eight members is good for you. But I think the burdens and the drawbacks are so outweighed. And if we go through an entire second term with only eight then people will start to see that. And people will start to realize that this is the court very elegantly trying to patch over its disagreements to reach consensus, but that's not going to last forever. So you just, I want to check one thing you said, which was we can't get Citizens United with eight justices, but boy, we sure got Bob McDonnell. This is the federal corruption charges that are thrown out against the former governor of Virginia, who uh, the court says, even though he took a bunch of cash and loans and gifts from a person who wanted access uh, because he didn't do any official act in exchange, official act as construed by the court, uh, the federal corruption laws were uh, overreached. So let's think a little bit about the extent to which the court messaged here at the end of the term this very, very complicated message about it's not corruption because everybody does it. And pretty much unless the quid pro quo situation involves, you know, a 
big sack of cash and a selfie that says, here's me giving you the sack of cash and a written uh, document, an instrument that says, and in exchange for the sack of cash, I gave him what he wanted. Uh, We're never going to see corruption again. So this was the court unanimously. And, you know, we talked about it on this show. And I know that a lot of uh, people on both sides of the aisle disagree that this is a problem. But I want to talk about McDonald only for the proposition that it seems to me that the last thing the court wanted to do institutionally was shore up the proposition that politics as usual is legal. Yeah, I mean, I think that decision was scary in a number of ways, even though I'm not yet entirely sure that I think it was a disaster. Uh, I think it's scary because in the post-Citizens United world, we're all told, look, corruption laws still exist. You can still nail legislators, et cetera, for corruption. You just have to find quid pro quo corruption, right? You know, this for that. Uh, And and it looked like in McDonnell you had quid pro quo corruption. Like, it, it seemed quite apparent that he had taken favors and in response the favors, uh, you know, given uh, access to higher levels of government and that kind of thing uh, to these people who paid him off. Uh, And the court said, no, 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 this is not an official act. What he did does not appear to be an official act. This is a broad reading, an excessively broad reading of the federal statute. Um, I think that if you were being generous, very, very generous, then you would say that what undergirds the court's decision there is a fear about uh, allowing the Justice Department to uh, inflict a code of ethical conduct on executives of states across the country. Uh, And this was something that really bothered Justice Breyer during oral arguments. uh, And it did not end up in any part of the opinion, but I can imagine if the court had had more time, there might have been a few justices who would have noted this in a concurrence. You know, I think they were alarmed that here the executive branch, the Justice Department, was going after this former executive of a sovereign state, as the court likes to remind us. Sorry, Commonwealth, I suppose you're there. You should Mm -hmm. know. We're very Um, fussy about that, yeah. Yeah, going 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 after a sovereign commonwealth and and saying, "Hey, you broke the law, federal law." And I think that just bothered some of the justices. I think they were concerned about what that would lead to whether the uh federal government and the executive branch in particular would start going after more executives, uh trying to figure out, you know, where this corruption was coming in and, you know, maybe they just don't want that and they wanted to nip it in the bud. So let's talk a little bit about abortion and all the ways that the 2015 term will uh, go down in history, I think, as the first time since Planned Parenthood versus Casey. That was the case in 1992, where the court narrowly agreed to save the core holding of Roe versus Wade. I think it was a surprise. Folks expected the court to do away with the right to abortion. Instead, the court changes the test in Casey, but says, in effect, no undue burden uh, on a woman's right to choose. And we're not going to tell you what that means. Good luck, Americans. And this case, really for the first time, Hold Woman's Health becomes the case that stands for the proposition that we're going to put some meat on the bones of that undue burden test. And moreover, that we are going to task the judicial branch with really scrutinizing what the intention of the legislature was and whether that maps fairly and reasonably onto the burden that women experience. Oh, it's a huge shift. And uh, I mean, it automatically renders quite suspect a number of trap laws in other states. Uh, What I think is really interesting about the case is that the way that the new, uh, well, the old standard was articulated, the undue burden, uh, that, that no law can put an undue burden between a, you know, a woman and her choice to terminate her pregnancy, the, the articulation of it was very meaty 
and very strong. There was a, there is a new idea that was not quite present in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. You could you could you could read it into it, but it wasn't fully there. Uh, the new idea is you have to compare the benefits to the burdens, and that means looking into whether the benefits are real or whether they're just something that former Governor Rick Perry and uh, former Attorney General, now Governor Greg Abbott, dreamed up and you know put on paper. And that's not something the court has ever articulated so clearly. And it makes me wonder if this holding really does go beyond trap laws. I mean, if we take the court at their word, a 72-hour waiting period between a woman getting a consultation for an abortion and actually terminating her pregnancy, that sounds like a pretty big undue burden as well. And, and you know, the courts have kind of split on those laws that we've seen in, in the Dakotas and in the South. But I wonder if we're going to see a fresh round of litigation now challenging the court to stick to its newest articulation of undue burden and to say, look, you don't get to make up benefits. You don't get to say that as long as a woman can eventually get an abortion, it doesn't matter if she had to walk through a crowd of people throwing egg yolks and have a doctor tell her she was going to hell. Uh, I, I think that this is a new day in American uh, abortion jurisprudence. And it's it's very exciting for pro-choice activists because the, the, the battle lines seem drawn and they seem to favor the pro-choice side. Talk about, I think the first email I sent you when the decision came down was, why is Breyer writing this? Um, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who's the senior justice in the majority, has the assignment power. He assigns it to Stephen Breyer, right? Instead of to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who in her head has been writing and rewriting this opinion since 1992. So what's your thinking about how that happened and why that happened and whether Ginsburg felt dissed? Well, I think that's just it. I mean, Breyer is a very fact-based, careful, uh, analytical justice. He doesn't like big, broad, sweeping rulings. He's not a poetic writer at all. He's never written one quotable word, in my, to my knowledge. If you have a Breyer line you can whip out right now, please do. Uh, you know, this is a guy who likes to talk about what's in the briefs, what are the facts, what conclusion you have to draw from that given precedent. Uh, and so I think for Kennedy, as the senior justice in the majority, he surveyed the landscape. He's not going to give a huge abortion decision to one of the, the junior justices, not, not Justice Kagan or Justice Sotomayor. That leaves Ginsburg and Breyer. Ginsburg is, you know, she's terrific, but I think if she had written this opinion, then it would have been a big, brash, proud, our bodies, ourselves, free to be you and me kind of declaration of women's autonomy. And that's not what Kennedy wants. I mean, I don't think he even believes in that. Uh, I think Kennedy wanted a very uh, careful, um, almost sort of boring opinion that lays out every single pertinent fact draws the conclusion and then closes with no grand oration in it. Uh, an opinion that would almost repel readers, that would make you <laughs> read five pages and say, oh, screw this. I get the idea. Right. And that's what we got. I mean, I haven't I, I, I had to struggle to get through every page of this opinion. So so I think that's that's the explanation that everyone seems to come up with. I think it's true. There's a kind of wild hair theory out there that Kennedy may have given it to Ginsburg and that Ginsburg Ginsburg may have then given it to Breyer so that Breyer could write the opinion that holds Kennedy, holds him tight, keeps him in that majority, and then frees Ginsburg if she wishes to write a separate concurrence where she can go all out and do her F.U. Texas, I'm going to mess with you thing, which is exactly what happened. I don't think that's actually true. I suspect that Kennedy gave it to Breyer right off the bat. Um, but it does help to explain why we wound up with this somewhat curious little Ginsburg concurrence on the side. I want to just point out, because, you know, this is something I bang on and on about. But I just want to point out that in all the Facebook memes uh, that have the three women just 
smacking down Texas. Uh, Stephen Pryor, poor guy, yet again, even when he writes the opinion, he gets erased from history. You know, it's like, poor guy. It's just, I, I feel like, you know, I know he has a strong wife and a uh, forceful daughter and i just feel like man the guy is just like a ficus you know he's just there just this lovely plant who wrote this great opinion and still yeah, but, i mean we see that notorious rvg like you know Jedi that's right. warrior memes. from <laughs> her six sentence concurrence she gets the headlines i think that's fine though i mean i think it made it harder for conservatives to really hate on the opinion because it was by briar who most of the rank and file conservatives aren't used to hating all that much yeah. he is the ficus for them too he's the ficus for all of us he's he, the ficus we need dahlia he is the ficus until Merrick Garland comes along, and then we'll have two fight guy. Um, let's, <laughs> let's let you talk about Sotomayor and race, because you've written so beautifully about this. And I feel like this, uh, you know, sort of should be the capstone of this conversation, Mark, because, you know, she uh, has really uh, pulled herself into a unique place at the court, I would say, the place that Thurgood Marshall once occupied. Um in terms of being the voice of this is how race is experienced on the ground and whether, you know, it's the theories about how she informed the voting in Fisher or, you know, her dissent in uh, Voisin, the gun case that came down this week. Uh, she has really positioned herself in a very unique way with respect to the Fourth Amendment, with respect to her you know, fierce uh, defense of uh, criminal rights. Can you talk a little bit about this progression and where she finds herself at the end of the 2015 term? Well, where she finds herself is uh, certainly in a unique place, probably the only justice to have uh, dissented with uh, Thomas that many times while also siding with Ginsburg in the majority so many other times. Um, She is quite unique. Uh, She is the conscience of the court on race issues, no doubt. Uh, And if anybody did doubt that, uh, her dissent in Streif, which was a Fourth Amendment case, really uh, just cemented her reputation and I think her legacy. I think this is one for the history books. Uh, was the Fourth Amendment case about uh, if a if a cop stops you illegally, unconstitutionally, uh, and then runs your name and finds an arrest warrant, an outstanding arrest warrant, uh, and and has found uh, illegal drugs or something like that on you, can those drugs be introduced into evidence even though your original stop was illegal, unconstitutional? And the court said yes, they can. Breyer was the decisive vote there. Tragically, the ficus sided with the uh, the four. <laughs> conservatives. And they said, yeah, there's an attenuation. You know, the cop stops you. That's illegal. But then he runs an arrest warrant search. He finds one. Well, that attenuates the illegal search. And so, you know, everything is fine from there on out. Uh, And and this just drove Sotomayor insane uh, for very good reason, because there are so many outstanding arrest warrants out there, especially in places that she cited, like Ferguson, Ferguson, Missouri. You may have heard of that small town. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, this is a place where some huge percentage of people have arrest warrants for very small matters, a traffic stop or something like that. And and as uh, Justice Sotomayor pointed out at oral arguments, a lot of these arrest warrants issue automatically. You you get cited for some traffic violation, you don't show up in court, and bam, you have an arrest warrant out there. So what, what Sotomayor was trying to say 
in in her Streif dissent, I think, was that the Fourth Amendment cannot be analyzed just in isolation outside of the reality of modern day policing. And the reality of modern policing is that it targets minorities and it targets low income people. And low income people and minorities are the ones who are oppressed the most every single time the court chips away a little piece of the Fourth Amendment. That was an incredibly powerful thing for her to say because all too often we get Fourth Amendment cases that seem utterly untethered to reality, uh, that just seem to, to suggest that the justices have never interacted with a cop in their entire lives. This was very much the end of that era. I don't think that even the conservatives would dare to write another strief-like opinion now uh, without at least contending with what Sotomayor is going to bring to the table, because she made it known, I am going to be the conscience of the court on this. I am going to remind you that race exists and that racism exists and that police brutality exists, no matter how much you want to deny it. And that is an incredibly important position, and one we haven't really had filled since Thurgood Marshall left the court in the early 90s. So maybe here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choke up this hairball of a theory, a unifying theory for the 2015 term, and you tell me what you think. Um, okay. I think that one of the interesting trends we're seeing is Sotomayor really pushing very hard to say, this is what the world looks like. There is race. There is racism out there. It's happening. Cope. And interestingly, Anthony Kennedy, and I think you've written about this this week, and um, we've talked about it before, but Anthony Kennedy, I think Sherilyn Eiffel makes this point last week on the show as well, that Justice Kennedy is also really no longer has that sense of just wanting to live in a world where he can deny that racism exists. And so he's also uh, in important ways tacking to the center and even to the left on race issues because he too uh, doesn't live in a world where race is just not a problem anymore. And I wonder if one of the theories of this term might just be that, you know, and I'm one of the loudest critics of the sort of limited life experience of some of the justices and the ways in which they don't interact with the police, one hopes, on a daily basis. And it it just seems as though Sotomayor is tugging, tugging, tugging in a way, and probably Ginsburg is doing the same on gender, but that it's becoming awfully hard for the conservative wing of the court to live in this kind of denialist place where things are the way we want them to be and we don't see otherwise. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're you're quite right about that. I think, you know, in the Seattle schools case in 2007, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Uh, I don't think he would dare to write something like that in today's climate. I mean, that is today, in light of Ferguson, in light of Freddie Gray, in light of everything we've seen in the headlines, sounds so obtuse, almost impossibly so, for a Chief Justice of the United States to say. Uh, and I think that Kennedy has just drifted so far to the left of Roberts and Thomas and Alito on this, in large part because of Sotomayor bringing her understanding, her experience, and also the headlines that I'm sure Kennedy cannot avoid seeing. I'm sure he reads the paper, even if it's the Washington Examiner. He's got to (laughs) know on some level that there's bad stuff going down in the world. And, you know, the story here, the classic story that Joan Biskupic unearthed for her book on Sotomayor is that uh, when Fisher first came to the court, Justice Kennedy was going to write an opinion slashing affirmative action, maybe not killing it altogether, but seriously cutting back on it. And that Sotomayor wrote a dissent that was so fierce and so, uh, you know, 
pragmatically realistic about what racism is today that uh, Kennedy just put it in a drawer and rewrote it and, and had a much more narrow, limited opinion about what what tier of scrutiny to apply. Right. Um, so I think you're I think you're quite right that the effect of having Sotomayor on the court ha- has drawn. Kennedy to the left. I think having Ginsburg on the court and having her be increasingly vocal about abortion has drawn him to the left on gender and on sex and, and abortion, which is, of course, a, a gender issue. Um, and and that he is letting himself be pulled for whatever reason. You know, it's not as though he couldn't have read the headlines in the 90s. It's not as though he's had his head in the sand this whole time. But for some reason, maybe it's senescence. Maybe, you know, he's entering his 80s now. He's just come around on gender and race in a way that nobody could have predicted in 1988. Well, I'm going to let you conclude with a thought on the court vacancy and what uh, I think we can agree that two things we're going to see starting in the October term are boring cases and very few cert grants. And I think we're going to see a whole lot of no confirmation hearings. So what what do we have? (sighs) Big sigh. What do we have to look forward to to next term, Mark Stern? Oh, my God. What do we have to look for? So much, Dahlia. So much. A whole nother term with Sam Alito. What more could you want out of life? I, and I'm actually somewhat serious about that. I, I think Alito has totally given up on being polite, if he ever was polite, and on being courteous and, and collegial in his opinions. And I mean, his affirmative action dissent was so nasty. Uh, his his uh, abortion dissent was so nitpicky and technical and, and mean-spirited. I I think we, we can see Alito filling in Scalia's role as the, as the angry guy with the whip on the far right flank of the court screaming at his colleagues. And I think that's going to be super fun to watch. Um, but, you know, I think we're also going to see more compromises, more moderate in the middle votes, more coalition building and that kind of stuff until we get the ninth vote. And, and there's nothing we can do about that as court watchers. You know, I, you and I would love to stand up in the middle of arguments and say, where's Merrick Garland? But it's not going to happen. Uh, it it just is is lodged the way it is for the foreseeable future, and so what we have to look forward to is more of the nitpicky infighting, more of the coalition building when it can happen, and maybe even a few more ties until we can finally get that ninth seat filled. Well, I think I'm going to let this term conclude on the weird S and M imagery of Sam Alito with a whip. And I'm going to thank you, Mark, for being— That's all I've ever wanted. That's, I am just going to thank you for being uh, an amazing uh, court-watching colleague at Slate and for joining us today on Amicus. And we will talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us. All right. Thanks so much. <laughs> So that is about it for this episode of Amicus. And if you haven't noticed, it's July, the month where the Supreme Court justices and those of us who cover them turn back into pumpkins and we slink out off into undisclosed foreign locations to have a little bit of R&R. And so we on this show are going to take a little break, too to contemplate, among other things, what is without a doubt the strangest Supreme Court term I have ever covered. But don't despair, the justices will return. Well, eight of them will return. We will too. And if you cannot bear to be without amicus in your earbuds all summer, whether you're at the beach or clubbing it in Manhattan, do remember that all 47 past episodes of this show are available for free on our show page at Slate. So go ahead and download any that you may have missed, including one of our very favorites that we taped just last week, a terrific conversation with outgoing Solicitor General Don Verrilli. 
You'll find that at slate.com slash amicus. And if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll also find transcripts of all our shows there. Though recall, they do take a few days to post. Also remember that we love and appreciate all of the mail you send our way. Our email address is amicus at slate.com. And know these messages are read and adored. Keep your messages coming. We appreciate all the kind reviews you leave on our show page in iTunes, reviews that go a long way toward helping other folks find out about the show. So if you have a few free minutes, consider leaving a few words there of your own. Just search Amicus in the iTunes store and click the ratings and reviews tab. And thank you. Another big fat thank you, as always, to the wonderful Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where we tape our show. Our producer is Tony Fields, Steve Lichtai is our executive producer, and Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and we thank you so much for listening. We really do have the greatest listeners in the world. We'll be back with you sometime before the Supreme Court reconvenes for its 2016 term with another edition of Amicus. Amicus.